Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuckers Bryant. And I would say about 100 people here in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. Say hey, people. I think uh, we figured the solution was we were in a bigger room across the way last year. Smaller room seems fuller. Yes. It, I think there are probably a few more people here, but just make the room smaller. Yeah. That's the easiest way to go about things. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who are just coming in on the recording, we've already done the bantering, so we're going to get to it, I think. Yes. Chuck. And we'll have questions at the end, by the way, so. Yeah, we may replace listener mail with the questions if they're good questions. Right. Okay. We probably should have included that before we started recording. Well, I don't have a listener mail, so we better have questions. Okay, all right. <laughs> Chuck. Josh. Have you ever heard of an actor named Nicolas Cage? Yeah. So have, You have? Uh-huh. So Nick Cage um, suffered some misfortune in uh, 2000, the beginning of 2000. It was a rough time for him. He suffered misfortune long before that. No, this is, this is I think, the start of it. This is before... Um, um, oh, I know what you're going to say. But oh, okay, all right. Um, well, just indulge, indulge. me. Um, so Nick Cage, uh, on January 21st, 2000, filed a police report because somebody broke into his house and stole his Action Comics number one. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> what did you think I was I thought that was the release date of uh, Ghost, Ghost Rider. That's what I thought you were going to say. It's funny you bring that up, though, because he did Ghost Rider because he's a big comic book guy. And he okay. would probably do any comic book movie that you asked him to because he's big into it. He had a, an action comics number one, which is the debut of Superman, mm-hmm. right? It was worth like $1.1 million, and it just vanished. And 10 years later, there was a guy on the case. There was this detective who was working the case the whole time. And um, he got a tip finally from a comic book dealer that this one issue of Action Comics number one had turned up and they were pretty sure that it was the issue, like Nicolas Cage's issue that had been stolen. And they, uh, they check all the identifying marks, the scratches, you know, like the, um, the fold from like the mom who's like yelling at her kid that she, she's going to throw yeah. this out. The piece of the hair plug. Exactly. Somewhere yeah. on the back right. pages. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Shoes lipstick. Right. <laughs> So uh, they identify it as Nicolas Cage's uh, Action Comics number one. He gets it back. Um, they found it in a, a guy who bought a trunk <clears throat> from auction from one of those places that, um, that, that, that sells stuff found in storage sheds, you know, or storage, you store it places. So I guess the, the moral of the story is, is go to those auctions. Oh, he bought one of the full bins? Yes. And it, and it had was in there? this comic in it. Wow. So he's just feeling loaded. And then all of a sudden, Nicolas Cage comes along and is like, that is mine. Right? And he was very ecstatic to get it back. This was April of 2011. He turns around and sells it for $2.1 million. Makes a million just sitting there after he already collected insurance money. Really? Yes. So it wasn't that special to him? No. And he, he pretended it was. But the point is that if, if... This story fascinated you, as I hope it did. <laughs> it's coming out as a movie 
but from the guys who created Reno 911, who played uh, Dangler and Junior. You no guys way. familiar with Reno 911? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're making a movie about this whole thing. About the caper of the whole incident. Yeah, with, with Nick Cage as a character and everything. It's very like. Is Andy Samberg going to play him? They don't know who's going to play him. But uh, that's, a, that's an excellent thing. Yeah, he, he does. I don't know if y'all seen the SNL uh, Samberg. It's pretty great. Is that right? Yeah, it's really good. So, uh, you know, it'd be great would be to see Andy Samberg doing Nick Cage doing Elvis. <laughs> yeah. yeah doing tiny Elvis. Really yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Tiny E. Uh, so I say all that to ask you, Chuck, if you've ever read a comic book. Wow. That was a good one. Uh, it was okay. You know I have because we have talked on the show. I can't remember which one. I was searching my brain when we were prepping for this. We talked about our love or my love. Of Archie comics growing up, so weird. because I was a good little Baptist boy, and I wasn't into like you know all the action heroes. Although I guess there was really no conflict there. Now that I think about it, um, but I had well, we'll talk about the Spire Christian comics. I had right, some yeah. of those for sure. Yeah, and um, I was into Archie, and the Archie people were kind enough to send us a bunch of swag after we recorded that. I didn't get any of that. I did. I kept it because you said that Archie was like wussy stuff. Oh, I, I remember. <laughs> So I took my little Archie Boxer shorts and I went home. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they did listen. That was very cool to know that they're still out there pumping them out. And I was into like Archie and Richie Rich. A little bit of superhero stuff. But this is the big big disclaimer. I know we're going to get murdered on this one. Because anytime we do a topic that is like religion to people. Yeah. Like comic books are to some people. Uh, we're we're going to get killed for it. Because we are definitely not experts in comic books. Right. That is a live version of COA. That is. That was very good stuff, Chuck. Cover our beep. So um, we're talking about comic books today. Uh, are you guys fans? Any yeah. really big? Somewhat. I like that response. That's good because you, you'll, you, you'll be like, that was okay. The people who clapped, I'm sorry. Are there any huge, huge comic book fans like that really know a lot about it? Because we'll probably ask you to come on. Sort of. Later. Okay, that's good. I was hoping for nobody. <laughs> That's good. One guy's fine. I want, like, Kevin Smith in the back row. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I look like you, but stay away. So we're going to talk a little bit about comic books, about the history, how they're made, famous comic books, not Richie Rich. That's it. That's the only mention of Richie Rich. All right. Uh, I mean, this is the time of, like, Occupy. You realize you can't talk about Richie Rich without people tearing you to shreds. You're right. Uh, I will say that we can probably skip most of the beginning because they, uh, in this article from HowStuffWorks.com, it's very thorough. So they, uh, whoever, who wrote this, do you know? A guy named uh, Nathan Chandler, who I've never met or heard of. But he did do a bang-up job. He did a bang-up job, but he spends a full page talking about defining what a comic book is. And I can assume we all know what a comic book is. <laughs> but I will say that I did learn that the little, uh, the gutters, I never knew that. The, you know, the, the blank spaces. panels, they have blank panels uh, to fill in spaces, and they're called gutters. And I also always kind of took for granted the... Uh, the, the flow of the comic book. Yeah. It, a lot goes into um, the way your eye follows the comic book, you know, and if you ever look at a comic book, you know, sometimes the dialogue's up here, sometimes down here, sometimes it's just action and the dialogue's over here, but they put a lot of forethought into the layout of the comic book. I thought it was kind of cool. Right. And um, that's why it's called sequential art. It's another name for a comic book. Um, and speaking of art, comic books are usually um, lumped in together with jazz and the mystery novel as like a pure American art form. Oh, yeah? yeah oh, yeah. I, I kid you not. I believe it. Um, so I think that was a great explanation of the comic book gutters. And I think, I think it's a good assumption. Everybody knows what a comic book is generally, right? Um, 
But I think the, the history is kind of something this fascinated me. And, like, man, I went to town doing, like, supplemental research on this. So I just if I get a little off at any point, just be like, it's fine. No, no, no. I love it. Okay, so um, do, you, do you know what the first one was? Well, I do. Um, it's right here in front of me. Uh, 1842, um, generally credited as the first comic book, is The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck. Uh-huh. Have you seen it? Did you look it up? I did. And the first thing I wondered what is whether or not Obadiah, wasn't it Obadiah Stane from Iron Man? Jeff Bridges in the so, movie? Someone answer him. Yes? Is that right? I just I always, I wondered if that was uh, just a nod to that first comic book. It's possible. Obadiah is not the most common name. So, um, but you did see it. Uh-huh. It's just like panel after panel of action. And there's like narration. Like, I don't think he actually talked at any, at any point that I saw. So it's kind of like a silent movie. Yeah. Almost, too. Um, and then it was just basically action, if you can call, like, rowing down the river with your hat <laughs> action. I mean, like, that was that sure. took up, like, four panels, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was the first time anybody ever put, like, you know, uh, sequential art and text together. And this was, you know, ostensibly the first comic book anyone's ever created. Yeah, and it was 1842. I know I said that, but let that sink in a minute and think about 1842 and what's going on. So it was a pretty modern thing for the time. I guess. Wouldn't you think? It was pretty Swiss. Well, it was Swiss. He, uh, Ro- Rodolfa Topfer? That's very nice. <laughs> I was going to say Rudolf Topfer. I think that was nice he went to that trouble. Yeah, he was a teacher and an artist in uh, Switzerland. Uh, was, did he do this in Switzerland? I think so because these were translated. I don't know. It says uh, made its first appearance in America. So, And it's a truly American art form. <laughs> Man, Invented by a Swiss own, man. My own fact against me. Um, okay, well then, yes, it was American in origin. It was. Um, so uh, fast forward from Toffer, right? Yeah. Um, to 1895, with the appearance of a kid with what I did. You see this guy? I did. The yellow kid, some sort of developmental problem or something. Like he, he was also the predecessor of the shirt tails apparently because a lot of the action and narration appeared on his shirt and it would change from time to time. But um, the Yellow Kid was um, the first humorous comic strip. And um, I use humorous like really, really like liberally because um, it wasn't funny at all. Well, com- <laughs> comedy in 1895 was like, if you weren't dying that day, then it was pretty funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't have the plague. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't that funny? So uh, the yellow kid comes along, and he's the first one where it's like, okay, you can pick up a newspaper and find something that will just take your mind off of everybody dying and sure. give you something to laugh about for a second, and it happens sequentially too, and there's speech bubbles, or else he says something on his shirt. And, yeah, and uh, speech balloons, that was... They had used them in political cartoons before, but this was like where the speech balloon really, like, took hold as a comic. Well, they remember they just like wrote everywhere in political cartoons. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I got a little nugget for you too. I don't know if you I had this. Hear it, the Yellow Kid, the, the comic, the Yellow Kid was the inspiration for the term yellow journalism. Evidently, is that right? Yeah, because uh, it was first used by someone I think from the New York Times said this Yellow Kid journalism. Uh, because he was in a Hearst newspaper, I think, and they were mocking Hearst. Gotcha. And that eventually came Yellow Journalism. Nice. Yeah. That was a good one. Thank you. So the yellow kid runs around doing his thing for another maybe like 35, 40 years, and then all of a sudden the boring part of this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> People start figuring out that they uh, – that the, 
people think the yellow kid's funny. It took about 40 years to like test the water, right? And then finally, like people actually like this stuff. <laughs> right. So let's start making new characters. And all of a sudden, you have like Dick Tracy, mm-hmm. Popeye. Um, who else was in there? Uh, Little Orphan Annie. Yes. And these are all like characters that are still resonating today, obviously. Right. And then uh, right after that, a little company named Eastern Color, who um, eventually, did you realize this? Eastern Color became EC Comics. Entertaining comics, which gave rise to Mad Magazine. Yeah. Which is like end of story right there. EC Comics is the, the most important thing that's ever happened to humanity. Yeah. Agreed. Right. So Eastern, Eastern Color um, starts printing like all these comics that are appearing in newspapers, puts them together into what's the first comic book. And they're all reprints. And Procter & Gamble pays for this and starts giving them away with, I guess, like toothpaste or some sort of weird toiletries from the 30s. You know, what were they using back then? I have no idea. Um, And uh, that kind of gave rise to the idea that you don't just get your comics out of the newspaper. And you can kind of see, like, these things are, like, starting to – these steps, these huge monumental steps are taking place, like, closer and closer together because – that was 1933. I think it was 1935 that somebody said, you know what? I'm tired of paying all of these fees to reprint all this stuff. I can just find some guys. It's the Depression and pay them like next to nothing. Yeah. Maybe assign some armed guards to make sure they work 24 hours a day right. and just publish like all new material. Yeah. They, the East, uh, uh, Eastern had uh, given these away through Procter & Gamble, and they actually sold a few after that because they right. thought, hey, these are really popular. And then that's when they started saying, you know what, these reprints are getting old. Yeah. Let's come up with original material. Yeah. And uh, in 1935, uh, DC Comics. Uh, in 1934, they were formed, actually, Detective Comics is what it stood for and stands for, unless they changed that without my no, knowledge. No, 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 it's, it's, still, still, okay. it's still going strong. And uh, they were the first ones to put out uh, something called New Fun Comics Number 1, <laughs> and that was the uh, – it sounds like a Chinese restaurant or something. <laughs> <laughs> and um, – should I not have said that? It's okay. Is that okay? <laughs> it's all right. This is live, but it's not going out okay, live. Okay, good. So. Um, and that was the first time that there was a full comic book of new stuff as part of a sequential series that people could follow. And right. that was ostensibly the first real, like, comic book was born. Yep. And um, the sixth issue, <laughs> the, the sixth issue, <laughs> I'm very uh, determined, um, of that comic book, what was it, New Fun Comics? Number one. Okay, so number six put together yeah. two guys named uh, Jerry Siegel and uh, what was the other guy's first name? Joe Schuster. Schuster. Joe Schuster. And um, within a couple of years, those guys put out the first superhero ever. His name was Superman. Let's get a round of applause for Superman. <laughs> exactly. And Superman changed everything. He was the first superhero. Yep. He was the first costumed one. So he said, it's all right to wear tights if you can throw a car. <laughs> sure. Right? Um, and uh, he gave rise to basically comic books as we know it today. You know, everything you think about with, with comic books and superheroes and um, being able to take a bullet in the chest and have it just ricochet. Which, by the way, are you familiar with the uh, George – what was the guy who played Superman? George Reeves, yeah. right? Or Reeve? And George Reeve. Yeah. And then Christopher Reeves was plural. Or do I have that backwards? No, no, you have it right. Okay. Have you ever heard the story when a kid came to one of his appearances – because George Reeve played Superman on TV in the 50s. Yeah. And so kids showed up with his dad's gun to shoot Superman, right? Because in the opening credits of Superman, um, he like some bad guys are shooting him, and he's just standing there with his chest out and bullets are ricocheting. Then one of them throws his gun and he ducks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
I but, thought that was weird. But a kid showed up after seeing all these, you know, many episodes of this and uh, to like some publicity appearance and um, uh, it was going to shoot George Reeves. And George Reeves or George Reeves said, um, kid, it would work if you shot me. But that bullet would ricochet off and hit somebody in the crowd, and you'd kill him, and you don't want to do that. So the kid, like, gave him the gun. And then he went, oh, my God. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that was a, a Superman aside. But um, Ben Affleck played him in a movie. Uh, George Reeves? Uh-huh. No. Right? Yeah, Hollywoodland. There you go. He was a pretty messed up guy. No, you're thinking of uh, Bob Crane and Autofocus. No. <laughs> no, you really are. No, no. They were, they were messed up in two entirely different ways. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Uh, so DC also gave rise to, uh, once Superman came out, or Soup, as we like to call him, uh, they also gave birth to Batman in the whole Detective Comic series. Uh, and uh, the D- Detective series is still going today. 800 issues, well, by the time this was written, I'm sure it's way more than that. At this 800 point. plus. 800 plus issues still going strong today. Yeah. Longest running comic title ever, the, the DC series. Right. So that was uh, 1939 that Batman came out. Um, 1941 was a big year, too. Wonder Woman came out in All-Star Comics number eight. Yeah. And uh, anybody who listened to the Lie Detector podcast will know that the guy who invented the Lie Detector, a psychologist, was uh, William Marston. I believe. That sounds right. He uh, also created Wonder Woman. and Really? Uh, yes, he did. You know this. You know this. Huh. Um, and he, uh, he was a psychologist who lived with two wives and the children he had with all of them under the same roof, supposedly happily. But he was huge into women's lib and truth-telling, which is why Wonder wow. Woman has that lasso of truth. He created the lie detector. Really? Yes. You wow. know this. I don't think I remember that. Okay. I was, like, zoning out on Linda Carter at the time, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so World War II came along, as we all know, unfortunately. And uh, that was when uh, superhero comics uh, were really big. And not only that, but uh, Walt Disney comics were really huge. Yeah. And they mentioned um, Donald Duck and uh, Mickey Mouse, obviously. But the most popular of the Disney comics, and actually the most popular comics during the most popular period of comic books, was Uncle Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. He was like the biggest Who selling knew? one, right? Yeah. But I remember I had a few of those as a kid. Yeah. Scrooge I liked McDuck's. the DuckTales. That was a good show. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> he, well, he figured big into that one. It was, it was great. Um but World War II, speaking of, yes. that was huge for comics. Yes. Because even before uh, the U.S. entered into the war, um, comic book characters were beating the tar out of Adolf Hitler like on a monthly basis. Like Captain America. Sure. He debuted uh, his number one edition uh, comic book, uh, had him like socking Hitler in the face. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome picture if you ever want to check it out, especially if you hate Hitler, you know. Um, but it's, so that's, don't we all, but that really? Was, that, was, that was par for the course for comics at the time. Like, they just beat up on Hitler and the Germans or the Japanese every month, right? Sure. Um, so that was kind of a, a big deal. Um, and speaking of uh, Nazis and comics, do you want to mention Hansi? Yeah. Uh, did anyone grow up here in the 70s and read any of the Spire Christian comics at all? You did? All right, one other person. That's how popular they were. Uh, my grandmother, uh, God rest her soul, Grandmother Mills, worked at a Baptist bookstore in Tennessee. And whenever I would go to this bookstore, uh, she would tell me to pick out some comic books, which I thought was really cool, like free comics. <laughs> However, being in Baptist bookstore, the only thing they had was Spire Christian comics, and they didn't have any superheroes or anything like that. They didn't even have Archie 
at the Baptist bookstore. And uh, Spire was really big at the time. Uh, a man named uh, Al Hartley, he was a cartoonist, uh, converted to Christianity in the late 60s. And converted like 25 family members, right? Did he really? Yeah. That's like he just point. went to town. He went to a prayer meeting, came home, and was like, that's it, we're all Christian. <laughs> I don't care what you have to say, you're Christian now. <laughs> right. And uh, he uh, worked for Archie Comics and tried to work in some of the, the Christian storylines through Archie. And then the publishers were like, you know, Archie's as clean as it can be, but we really need to tone this down on the religion thing. So, Like, like wait, let that simmer in. <laughs> the publishers of the Archie comics told this guy to tone it down. Yeah. That is significant. Man. It was pretty significant. And uh, lucky for him, a publisher called Fleming H. Ravel came along and said, you know what, I want to start a full line of Christian comics. Uh, we'll call it Spire Christian Comics, and you can go to town, dude, as much as you want on whatever you want. Yeah. And he did he totally with uh, Hansi, mm-hmm. who I will show this little picture. That I is, know. I wish we had that up on the... Uh, that's okay. This, this is lo-fi. That is Hansi. The and girl Hansi. who loved the swastika. That's the subtitle. Yes, from 1973. And I actually did not have this one, but I did have the... <laughs> you did No, but I had the Johnny Cash Christian comic, the Tom Landry Christian comic, and the very awesome story, The Cross and the Switchblade, in which a thug uh, uh, mugger is uh, turned, you know, by the guy he mugs. He mugs a pastor. Oh, yeah. And the pastor's like, come, come, come with me. Let me tell you a few things. That happens a lot. <laughs> but Hansi was huge. She was a young girl in uh, Sudetenland, and uh, the Germans invaded. And she was very glad the Germans invaded because they brought books for her to read. Uh, they took her to a Russian uh, prison camp. And uh, they raped all of the women except Hansi because she was too skinny, which uh, I don't even know what to say about that. I don't know. <laughs> but she was very fortunate to get out of that, obviously. Uh, eventually, she finds her way to an American camp. She's very pleased because the soldiers there treat her well. Yeah. And uh, moves back to America, finds a husband who introduces her to the Bible. Right. And then it was all over after that. She opens up halfway houses in California. And doesn't age over the period of like 60 years. No, that was the critic's big problem with this one was that yeah. she doesn't ever age. That was the problem with this comic. But, <laughs> but time still went on. So like 60 years later in the book, she's talking to people about where she started out. And she's still teenage Hansi. So do you want to drop the bomb on him? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. It is based on a real story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that the bomb? Okay. <laughs> I thought it would have a much bigger impact than that. That's why I call it the bomb. I would have been like, do you want to mention that last thing to him? Yeah. Thank you oh, very right? much, <laughs> Yeah, what was her name? Uh, I can't find it. Oh, yeah, uh, Maria Ann Hirschman. I like Hansi more. Yeah, Hansi is a very, very remarkable name. So World War II, it was big for comics, whether you were beating up Hitler or publishing Christian comics about girls who love swastikas. It was, it was huge. Yeah, there were, there were also some propaganda comics in the, in the 40s about uh, communism. Um, Is This Tomorrow, America Under Communism, in which the Speaker of the House uh, was subverted before assassinating the president and the vice president and smashing a statue of the Virgin Mary. So Jeez. that's some serious propaganda going on. I've got one for you, speaking of propaganda. So um, Jerry Siegel, one of the guys who created Superman, um, because Superman beat up Hitler on such a regular basis, Joseph Goebbels himself called Jerry Siegel uh, circumcised physically and intellectually, a beetle. <laughs> so, man, if you take off Joseph Goebbels enough yeah. to, to say something publicly about you, you're doing something right. Agreed. And I think they were. But uh, so the, the big thing besides beating up Hitler 
in coming up with Hanzi that World War II um, did to comics was that it created like a whole new readership in GIs. Like the, the American government actually sent comic books out to the front. So you had a whole new group of grown-up guys who were like, this is pretty cool. I like beating up Hitler. But I'm also into like westerns and science fiction and horror yeah. and crime and just like more adult-themed stuff. And I also want to see like some more nakedness than I'm seeing in comics. <laughs> and, like, I want to see the F word, not just like some, you know, the dollar sign and an asterisk or something like that. So um, it, it changed the readership of comics. So when everybody gets back from the war, uh, comics themselves change, too, from that demand. Yeah. So you have horror comics. You have Western comics. You have crime comics. And comics get, like, way more hardcore, way cooler than they were before, right? Agreed. But they actually step over the over this line, supposedly. Yeah, because uh, a man named uh, Frederick Wortham, a, a psychiatrist in 1954, um, wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. And he kind of threw it out there that these comic books are what are leading our kids down this awful path of destruction and parents of course bought into it big time yeah well basically he was saying like this is comic books are going to turn our all of our kids into serial killers like they're they're all doomed some are probably already killing and you don't know it and your parents (laughs) so just pay attention to your kids and get rid of the comic books and actually binghamton new york um had had a comic book burning oh really based because of this book i got a friend from there he never told me about that it's a dirty secret among yeah. the townsfolk. <laughs> uh, so uh, the comic book um, industry decided, you know what, we're going to take a big financial hit here if we don't do something. So maybe we should self-censor because uh, censorship is illegal, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what they say? And uh, so they came up with what they called the, uh, the code, uh, Comic Code Authority, the CCA. And it was all self-imposed. And up until I think last year, DC Comics still subscribed to this, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, Marvel stopped in like the 70s, I think. So this is way too long, but I'm just going to read you a few highlights. Um, <laughs> general standards part A, the big thing was to not um, endorse crime or to, uh, to uh, make crime seem like something kids would want to do. So you, you couldn't uh, explicitly present unique details or methods of a crime. You didn't want any copycatting going on. You would, could never show kidnapping whatsoever. The actual word crime could not be any larger in font than any other word. Um, General standards B, uh, no walking dead, no torture vampires. I don't even know what that is. Because they also include regular vampirism, so I guess torture vampires is a little Those are the worst kind of vampires. Those are the worst. (laughs) Those are not Twilight vampires. (laughs) No ghouls, no cannibalism, no werewolfism, obviously. Which is not even a word. Yes, it is. Werewolfism. Uh, Under dialogue, um, no profanity, um, smut, no vulgarity. Um, precautions to avoid references to physical afflictions or deformities. Didn't want to make anyone feel bad about themselves. Can I say my favorite? Yeah. Wherever possible, good grammar shall be employed. (laughs) (laughs) Is that in there? Yeah. I didn't even see that. Uh, Religion, there's only one rule. Ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. Uh, Nudity is prohibited. Uh, (laughs) And this one is what I think personally inspired R. Crumb to take up a pen. Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. <laughs> so R. Crumb was like, what? <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and we mentioned that because, uh, joking aside, this is what actually gave rise to underground comics. Yeah, because comics from that point on sucked. 
Yeah. <laughs> and actually, um, I think uh, sales dropped between 1954 and 1956 like 50%. Oh, really? Yeah. And this is the comic book publishers doing it themselves. They came up with this code. They established this authority. And any time you finish a comic book, you had to send it in. The CCA would be like, change this, change that, and then we'll approve it. Um, so then, yeah, it drove everything underground because it's like – uh, sordidness can neither be created nor destroyed, so it has to go somewhere. And it went, like you said, like into R. Crumb. Right. It went into underground <laughs> comics, and comics is spelled with an X. Right. Just to kind of separate it from other comics, and, you know, because they're X-rated, which they were very sure. proud of. Uh, this was the 1960s, um, and so all of a sudden they were tackling with underground comics the really good stuff. Uh, sex, drugs, politics. With cats, though. Yeah. Well, Fritz the Cat was one of the big ones. Yeah. Um, but along with all these sordid tales, um, comic books at the, uh, also grew in respectability because they started, you know, like real literary works all of a sudden were being created. Right. Like the art got better. Uh-huh. The, um, the storylines got a lot better. Yeah, the writing got better. Yeah, because it was like, hey, we were back from World War II. We want uh, mature comics. And here they are, and now they're banned. So... It's, it, people wanted that, and if there's demand with anything, like you're going to get it. So, um, the other thing that underground comics created, besides um, our crumb stuff, Harvey Picar was another big one. Too. Oh yeah, sure. That was a great movie, wasn't it? Yeah, was American it American Splendor? Splendor? Yeah. Um, was it kind of proved that you can take something like in comic book form and add like real literature to it, real art to it? Yeah. And that eventually gave rise to the graphic novel. Thanks to a guy named Will Eisner. Yeah, 1978, A Contract with God is generally considered, even though they had used words like graphic before, which they don't like, by the way. They don't like graphic novel because it sounds dirty. You know what I'm saying? Who doesn't like that? The comic book people apparently never liked the term graphic novel. Really? Yeah. Huh. That's what I hear. Um, and a novel, like a drawn novel had been used, but Will Eisner actually printed on the front cover a graphic novel by Will Eisner. Right. And he thought he coined the term, but apparently it was some fan who had, like, years before. Yeah, but everyone says Will Eisner. We'll go with that. <laughs> so that, that gives rise to um, this whole idea that, like, you can create something that's longer than 20 to 30 pages that yeah. has, like, real meaning to it where, like, the characters are just messed up, including these people who are supposed to be heroes. Yeah. Because that's something that's been simultaneously evolving, too. Will Eisner was the first person to create a superhero, the... the spirit. Yes. With flaws. Um, who was just deeply flawed. Yeah. Like, he didn't always... He wasn't always successful at fighting crime. Like, he failed. Mm -hmm. He had problems. Um, so... Him coming back and creating the graphic novel is not really surprising. It was almost like he was setting a precedent for years later. Right. But it gave rise to, like, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Yeah. Um, the uh, Alan Moore's Watchmen. Which is the only graphic novel I have read. Is it good? It is awesome. I've not read it. Yeah, it's way awesome. Uh, did somebody just gasp? Yeah. <laughs> it is gasp-worthy, I think. Uh, and then Frank Miller. I have not read any of his stuff, but I have seen Sin City. Yeah. I enjoyed that. And he did, uh, he did 300 too, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. It looks like it. Yeah. Uh, and oh, then the abs in that movie. Man. He did, <laughs> he did, he did the, uh, for those of you who aren't here, Chuck just waved the sweat off his face. Uh, he did the Dark Knight Returns too, which gave yeah. rise to like all of the Batman movies that we know and love now. Because Batman also originally kind of started out flawed after the spirit. Uh-huh. 
And then he turned into like just this, um, well, he turned into the 60s TV show Batman, which was awesome in its own right. But if you're in the comic book industry and you're trying to prove that comics are legitimate art forms and Adam West is doing his thing on TV every week, like it's really kind of undermining your case, right? Yeah. So that there were no abs did, in that, by the way. No, there was flabs. Adam West had like some serious Man, love handles. there was. Oh, and speaking of, so we talked about the guy who wrote The Seduction of the Innocent. Uh-huh. One of his big problems with comics was that um, Robin and Batman were clearly homosexual. Robin was uh, drawn often with bare legs, frequently spread apart while he was standing, and he was, uh, I think, uh, clearly only attached to Batman or something like that. That was one of his big problems. Well, I think they were the inspiration for the uh, Smigel's uh, ambiguous oh, yeah. duo. Yeah. Which, yeah, don't get me started. It's one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> he talks about it all the time. I do. Um, Stan Lee was actually one of the, one of the first uh, people um, to start having flawed superheroes as well. Yeah. But they weren't, like, completely messed up, like, uh, in The Watchmen. No, but he was Stan Lee, who um, was, like, one of the founding guys at Marvel, as everyone knows, I'm sure. sure. Um, he was working within the structure. Like, yeah. The underground comics guys, they didn't have anybody to answer to. They could do or say whatever they wanted to. But Stan Lee, you know, he was working for Marvel. It was a major publisher, and he had confines to work with him. But he was trying to kind of push the boundaries here or there. And he was doing it with Floyd, like um, Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, he's, he's just a total screw-up. Well, he was the first guy to kind of um, introduce characters that uh, their their powers were a curse and not so much a blessing. Right. Like, he had the Fantastic Four, who, three of them, it was a big blessing. But, of course, the thing, I always want to be human. Um, but, you know, Tony Stark was a big jerk, as everyone's seen in the Iron Man movie, if you're not a fan of the comic book. And he was forced to become Iron Man to live, you know, to keep living with this that punishment, that thing. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> the... Uh, yeah, the flux capacitor in his chest. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Spider-Man, he didn't choose that. He was a little nerdy kid who got beat up and got bit by a spider. The Hulk, very tortured character. He didn't want to be the Hulk. He hated being the Hulk. He hated being uh, Lou Ferrigno. Yeah, he certainly did. But it's it's pretty cool that yeah, Stan Lieber actually was his original name, and Stan Lee was his, uh, what he became. But um, he kind of took it to a different level, even further than Eisner, I think, from what I understand. He... Um he also helped create the uh, like the shared universe, like all Marvel characters live in the same universe. Yeah, that cross over a lot, and that was like groundbreaking when he came out with that. Like everybody takes it for granted now, um, but that was a big deal. Yeah, and it's the guy I can't remember the article that I read, but um, the guy um, that I read talked about uh, the sharing of characters, and he said other people had had people appear as guests in other comics, but um, they were the first people to really build this universe and have this carefully constructed forethought to where you felt like at any given moment a different person could show up and it wouldn't be like, oh, wait a minute, there's Hulk all of a sudden. Right. It would, like, make sense. Right, exactly. So it's, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and I think it was Comic Cube that you got that one from. Yes. So Marvel, household name, obviously, so it's DC Comics. They account for eight out of every ten uh, comic Marvel books sold and in the DC US. and DC together? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, total, that whole ten... Uh, accounts accounted for $417 million in sales in 2011, which is substantial, if you ask me. Um, that ain't nothing on uh, manga. Manga. Manga? Mange. Mange? Whatever. <laughs> These are comics in Japan, and we're covering the United States uh, pretty much exclusively, but they are huge in Japan. And uh, in 2007, they, uh, total sales were $3.6 billion dollars. 
in Japan alone. That's so crazy. I know. And that same year, 175 million of Japanese comics in U.S. and Canada. So they're popular over here as well. Yeah. Oh, you mean I went to Japan and everywhere you go where there's manga being sold, there are 18 kids just standing there reading. I'm like totally smoking cigarettes. No, no, they're no. all wearing like school. No, this is like a whole country of good kids. Man. Oh, okay. They don't smoke cigarettes yet. Um, like they wait till adults and then everybody yeah. smokes. Um, but yeah, no, they're all wearing like their little shorts and their blazers and everything, right. reading manga, like just crazy stuff. Yeah, and those are generally black and white. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not the manga expert. I've just been to Japan once, so that's more than me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Uh, We've talked about the history of comics. We've talked about manga. What else is there to cover? Let's talk about some of these, uh, some of the top artists, and because uh, the part on how they're done is really not super interesting. No, no. I think I think it bears mentioning though. It's not uh, one person isn't creating a comic. There's um, there's the writer. Yeah. There's the um, uh, the penciler uh-huh. who draws rough sketches. The inker who comes in behind and like substantializes everything. Right. The uh, person who does shading, the the uh, well, there's the colorist. Yes, uh, and then the uh, letterer. Yeah, and the letterer. I thought that was kind of cool, actually. Yeah, you know, you don't like, think about the font that much, but it really, really matters. If it's bold or something, yeah. you know, they, they they make these decisions or these choices. But really, it's like, is it bold, not bold, or squiggly? Yeah, that's kind of what the that's what the letter is coming up. And squiggly <laughs> means fear, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Or or, or intrepidation, trepidation. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a word. It is. Uh, yeah, so we, we did. We searched uh, Comic Cube, and um, I'm not sure what this other one was, but because I didn't know who gen- people generally considered the top artists and writers of comic books. But this dude has Stan Lee in the Marvel gang, including Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, the people who created Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, uh, Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, Silver Surfer, at number five. Yeah. Yeah, this guy's all over the place. I don't know much, but I thought, come on, dude. He was clearly drunk when he made this list. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he has uh, Harvey Kurtzman is number one. And Kurtzman was famous for for his military comics. And uh, they were not very pro-military at all. They were very much showed the downside of war and showed the ugly brutality of war. But he is the man who went on to later create uh, Tales Calculated to Drive You Mad which became Mad Magazine, which Josh and I were, you know, huge fans of. Yes. Still are. He also uh, oversaw Tales from the Crypt because that – Oh, really? That was EC. That was Eastern Color. I thought I heard a gasp about Tales. Was that you? Wow. That's awesome. Big Tales from the Crypt, man. Two gasps in one podcast. (laughs) That is uh, 200% more gasps than we usually have. (laughs) Yes, actually. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, you, no, I okay. don't know where you were going. Uh, well, I thought I'd cover some of the artists, too, because uh, the writers get a lot of due, but you never hear a lot about the artist. And um, Lou Fine, one of the first big stars in the 1940s. They got him at number 10. Not bad. Okay. And uh, Frank Frazetta, who I didn't think I knew until I looked him up. He was uh, a, a comic book artist for a very short time and then was one of the few guys to go on to mainstream art. And I was like, I still haven't heard of this guy until I clicked on Google Images. And then I went, oh, the guy who did the Molly Hatchet album covers. Nice. And he did all those awesome fantasy uh, fantasy paintings. Yeah. It was really I, I, cool stuff. I'm a fan of uh, Yes and Asia's album covers and Iron Maiden's. I think Iron Maiden has the best album covers. I don't know who time. did those. I don't either. It's just awesome. <laughs> okay, exactly. a small clap for Iron Maiden. Yeah. Uh, Neil Adams, they have listed at number three. What did uh, he do? He was the guy who brought along um, 
modern uh, techniques like uh, from the commercial art world. Gotcha. And he applied it, and he sort of revolutionized. And people generally say that as far as art's concerned, you have the Kirby area, uh, era, and then you have the Adams era. So he was, he was that important. And Kirby is number one. Captain America, X-Men, Hulk, Fantastic Four. Yeah. Forget about it. What about Steve Bilko? Who? Steve Bilko. Not to be confused with Steve Biko. Ditko? You're thinking Sergeant Bilko, the Steve Martin movie. No, I was thinking of Steve Biko. Oh, okay. Steve Ditko. Yeah, Ditko. He Not co- to be confused with Mike Ditko. I think he, uh, he co-created Spider-Man and I think was the first guy to draw Spider-Man. Yeah, like the comics we, drew, we grew up with, Yeah, it was um, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I'm sorry. The comics I grew up with were uh, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. <laughs> I grew I up with and everyone else in this room except you. And you. Uh, you got anything else? We should talk about Mouse maybe for a second. Yeah, that was a big deal. Uh, that was uh, Arch Spiegelman, and he was he won a special Pulitzer Prize for his comic book Mouse M A U S, and it told the story of he and his father in uh, Nazi occupied Germany, and he used a very tried and true technique of uh, using uh, animals as people. Mm-hmm. So the Jews uh, were mice, Germans were cats, of course, and uh, Pol- uh, Poles were pigs. And I, did, I thought, well, is that tried and true? And then I thought, oh, no, duh, every Disney movie I've ever seen has animals, not as people. And but, again, shirt tails. Yeah. Duck tails? No, shirt tails. Oh, is it? I don't know, shirt tails. You don't remember shirt tails? No. We got three gasps. <laughs> what was shirt tails? Oh, it was a, like a, uh, some crime-fighting... Um, menagerie of uh, like a panda and like a fox and like so a moose. Um, and they moose? all they all they lived in this tree and then they all jump into like a like something akin to the Great Space Coaster, fly off to like handle a problem, solve a mystery. But they would like whatever emotion they were feeling would like flash on their shirts. That was their gimmick. And this is a cartoon. Yeah, it was a great cartoon. I don't know how I missed this. I was in the Baptist bookstore. <laughs> I, I think I think your your grandmother would have been okay with shirt tails. Ah, uh, you never know. It was not very. Were the shirt tails tucked or untucked? <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even wearing pants now. That I think oh about well. It, so forget about it. Maybe not. It's all over. Yeah. Uh, I got nothing else. Actually, Watchmen. Uh, you, keep, you keep saying that and then following I it up know, with something I know. I know. There's, but we should say Watchmen was so great. It was named one of the 100 best English language novels. Uh, in Time Magazine in 2005, so yeah, I should say it all. Even though the movie I liked, because I liked the book so much, wasn't so great. Did you watch it? The movie? The Watchmen movie? No. No? It was good. It was faithful. I, well, I just remember like just a, a big sense of depression just kind of settled over America for like two weeks after that movie came out. Yeah. So <laughs> it's definitely not it. an uplifting story. But no, no, I meant because it like wasn't as good as everybody else. Oh, likes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so uh, let's see. If you guys want to learn anything more about comic books, we actually have a bunch of comic book stuff on the site. You can type in comic books, C-O-M-I-C space B-O-O-K-S, yes. in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and that will bring up this article. And I said handy search bar. I didn't even just say search bar. I said handy search bar, which means it's time for Q&A. Whoa. Yeah. Unless no one has any questions. <laughs> Thank you very much. So does anyone have any oh, questions that have nothing to do with comic books? I'm just kidding. Okay. Hi. What's your name? Uh, John 
Oh, wait, we got a mic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can hear you. Well, no, no we're recording this. We need so. it uh, for the recording. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, by standing up, you uh, release us from any kind of liability for using <laughs> your voice. What if I squat happens? <laughs> it's yeah. too late now, pal. Um, what type of uh, screening process did uh, uh, you, Josh, go through when you were kind of picking out your co-hosts? Because before, uh, you had podcasts for five minutes long. You had different few people right, that worked right. at HowStuffWorks.com. Right. I mean, yeah. did, Chuck just start working there and like, hey, let's do a podcast, or I need somebody to do 30 minutes of podcasting with me. How did that work, Josh? So um, we, uh, for those of you who don't know, Chuck and I haven't always been together. Um, there was a, there, I know, there was a dark time pre-Chuck. It's just it's crazy. I want to forget about it. But, um, but uh, no, uh, so uh, it very much came about the way that the podcast came about, where I have a boss who came along and said, hey, why don't you get together with Jerry and um, make a podcast? It doesn't matter that you don't know what a podcast is or that you've never heard one. Just go do it. So we did. We tried a few people. Um, they were editors at the time. That's how they were picked. And then um, all of a sudden, uh, I think you went to Connell, didn't you? And you're like, dude, I want to know. I didn't even well, know what was going on. Well, then just out of the blue, Connell was like, hey, let's do this with Chuck. And we tried it with Chuck. And, man, it was like the first moment he sat down, I was like, this guy smells good. <laughs> like, things just seem, like, different now that this recording session. Like, I'm not sad. Like, everything just seems cool. <laughs> and then he opened his mouth, and it was like fireworks, dude. <laughs> I, can, I don't even know how to interpret that. <laughs> so that's how it started. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, we were we were buddies at work and had similar sensibilities, and it, it just sort of made sense. I'm frankly a little shocked that they didn't pick me to begin with, to be honest. I, I am as well. I mean, we were buddies already at work. We knew each yeah, other through work, and we, like, palled around and everything. But, um, yeah, it was. I think it was just kind of like a baptism by fire, and then they're gotcha. like, it's Chuck time. Uh, we got number two. Yes, hi. Hello. Hi. Um, so I'm curious what a topic is that maybe you guys keep saying, oh, we need to do this, we should do this, we should do this, and you just never get around to doing it. Something that... Uh, you'll probably say the same thing I would say is Scientology. We'll say the same thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Was that what you were going to say? No. Oh. I mean, that Scientology is one that we have been asked to do many, many times that we want to do, um, but they are a very litigious group, and... Um, we don't have that much money. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're scared to do one. Yeah, I am. I mean, John Travolta's in Georgia right now shooting a movie, so they could just send him over to our house. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a moment where it was like, hey, maybe we will do Scientology because the FBI was investigating them. There's all this stuff on public record, which is the big, the big problem is like every, every source that we would come across would be um, – just about hearsay from disgruntled people, ex-members, whatever. And it's very, very one-sided. Um, so all of a sudden, like, there was a possibility that we were going to have all these sources from, like, FBI investigations, and then it just stopped. And we're like, well, if the FBI is not doing it, we're certainly not going to do it either. So. They have guns. Yes, over there in the glasses. Uh, I think, actually, if oh, sorry. Just, yeah, this person over here is You're started. You're next. Ten minutes, Greg. Hi, um, my name is, is, is Cara, and, and I live in Guatemala with my husband. And uh, oh, we're big fans of your yeah, country. We've been we there. loved 
your podcast. Those two podcasts you did on Guatemala were awesome. Thanks. For those job. of you who don't know, we went to Guatemala with Jerry. Um, we were invited by a group called Coed, uh, who's a nonprofit who does great work down there, and they paid for us to go down there, and it changed our lives in some a, a lot of ways. Yep. And, you know, I, I want to compliment you on it because uh, you, you did the history section really well, <laughs> which most people don't do. Um, and, and one thing that I want – and actually Brad was like, man, I wish I'd gotten this before I went to Guatemala. You know, because it really served as kind of a, like a, like a dummies on Guatemala. Oh, cool. so that was really great. Well, we were um, dummies in Guatemala. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you um, is, you know, uh, if were there some stories or some other things that you left out, like how you went about? I mean, you, you know, you talked a lot in your second uh, Guatemala podcast about how there was all this material that you didn't include. Um, or things that you could have included but you didn't. And I guess I'm wondering, like, was there, like, one thing in particular that you didn't include in that podcast that maybe you could talk about? It probably had to do with Ron Zacapa rum. <laughs> probably. <laughs> the nectar of Guatemala. That's good stuff. Um, I, I think there was just so much that went on. There wasn't anything in particular, but when you're there for – how long were you there? Like four or five days? I think five days. Five, yeah, it's five days and six nights. I think. Yeah, it's hard to encapsulate that in two hours. There was definitely nothing we were covering up. No. <laughs> Beautiful country, though. Do you know? Do you know? Uh, I went. I, I gave a sacrifice to Mashimon, um with a cigarette. It and, worked. And some some cane liquor, and um, I quit smoking like uh, two years this May. So. That definitely, that definitely helped. So it works, I guess. <laughs> That's to answer your question, yeah. Over there, I think she had a question. Yeah. And she's like, no, not anymore. She was, yeah. <laughs> she's like, it was about Guatemala. Yay. So um, my question is related to research. So um, we pretty much live in a world now where most people, including like if you're in school, will do research, I guess, on the Internet. So I was wondering for each topic, like, A, if you're doing research online, how do you try to validate a particular fact? And then also, do you ever go outside of the Internet for, I don't know, validation or more research? And if so, what are your sources? Josh? <laughs> uh, uh, it's almost all internet uh, research, which is uh, kind of the way it is these days. It is. Um, I've written one article where I went to the uh, the library, and I've written a few hundred articles for House of Works, and I actually had to go to this rare books library to find the one book in print as I was writing about um, Elizabeth Bathory, who's this Hungarian countess who's like the world's most prolific serial killer ever. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was it was really hard to find like any good stuff, like decent sources on her, but I knew that there was this one book out there. So I've been to the library one time, and I'm like, <laughs> Not in his it. life. He had been before that. Yeah, right, exactly. Okay. I was like, what is this place? <laughs> All these weird books. <laughs> um, and it smells. There's pencils. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was pretty much the extent of it. Um, there's so much good stuff online. I think it, five, six, seven years ago, you could have really put somebody down who said that they just do their research on online. There's so much good stuff, especially if you know what you're looking for, what you're looking at. If the, the fact you're kind of looking up appears in almost the same wording and source after source after source, well, then you need to go find something else. And yeah, that's not a good thing, actually. It's always very good to 
just find a couple of sources for a fact, especially something that's just kind of outlandish. It, it's a lot of common sense, and then it's a lot of like knowing who you're who you're getting your sources from. Um, we have since virtually stopped writing um, since we've been working on the TV pilot and since we've been um, podcasting so much lately um, that we rely on how stuff works articles and um, that. So we'll, like all of our articles are based on just a House of Works article, and then we do supplementary research. And it, um, I guess all, that's all we need. Like is the House of Works basis, because we know that there's the same amount of attention and dedication has kind of gone into the research to write that article, that very rarely do we run across one where we're like, this is just flagrantly wrong. The Donner Party is yeah. an exception. And when we do, <laughs> check out the Donner Party one. We tear that poor kid apart. I don't yeah. remember who wrote That's it. That's coming out soon. But when we do, we call him out like because it's bad research. And we hate bad research because it makes us look like jackasses. And we hate looking like jackasses. So, um, But it's almost all online. Thanks. Uh, we, got, we have one more. Perfect, man. This is petering out nicely. <laughs> I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. Um, I was just wondering what a day in the life of Josh and Chuck looks like. Uh, you said you don't write as much anymore, but um, how many podcasts do you do per week? Um, you know, wh what's the pilot going to be like on your schedule? I mean, what's, what Funny do you, you should day? ask. This is not a plant, by the way. <laughs> Great question, though. Thank you, Tim. Uh, we... <laughs> I mean, stranger. Yeah. We, um, we record uh, between two and four a week. And we release two a week, so we tried to build up what we call a kitty, like Jerry likes to call it. So, like when we go out of town or when we're shooting TV stuff, you know, we can still release on a regular basis because if anyone wants to start a podcast, everyone always asks for advice. You always have to release it very regularly. The biggest mistake uh, podcasts make starting out is they'll release one, then they'll wait a few weeks and release another one. But that Tuesday, Thursday, man, people count on it coming out. And um, so we record two to four. We do. We have a little video podcast now uh, that's kind of fun, and we record 12 of those a month um, that we alternate every other week. So generally a day in the life is us, uh, you know, researching and uh, studying. We call it studying. It's, it's a lot of, lot of reading, and Josh memorizes way more than I do. But um, We take a nap on carpet squares at 2 p.m. sharp Yeah, 2 p.m. every day. Butter, <laughs> then, cookies, and then, juice. Yes, then martini time yeah. after that. <laughs> But since you did mention the TV thing, uh, we would like to invite everyone here uh, tomorrow to uh, Fado Irish Pub on 4th Street. And we are having a variety show slash premiere party for the TV pilot that Science Channel has gone out on them and been really awesome to let us do. And uh, it is at 5 o'clock it starts, mm -hmm. goes till 9. Mm -hmm. And um, we have uh, John Hodgman will be there, our old bud. And... Uh, a gasp for John or just a clap? That was a boo and a clap. Oh, okay. uh, John will be there and a uh, comedy from uh, Eugene Merman, who's very hysterical stand-up. And uh, our buddies, the Henry Clay people, will be playing music. And local band Crooks will be playing music. And Lucy Wainwright Roach, who plays Jerry on the show, will be playing music because she is also a very talented singer, songwriter, uh, guitar player. And uh, it's going to be fun. First hundred people get a free drink which is always nice. And <laughs> Everybody just ran out right now. <laughs> no, got in line at Fidel. So, yeah, it's going to be a good party, and we thank Science Channel because they are super awesome and have really stuck their necks out to give us a shot at a TV pilot, which uh, hopefully we'll see later on this year. And uh, is that, is you that are, good? You are good at that, man. Thanks, man. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. 
Uh, anything else? I'm good. Does anybody else have any questions? We have one minute. Man, this was perfect. As a matter of fact, everybody give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you Thank for coming. You very much for coming. Uh, let's see. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can reach us on Twitter at SYSK Podcast. If you don't follow us, it is a jam. Uh, Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Also, quite the party. They could have gone and seen Willem Dafoe right now, by the way. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. I wish I had a $5 bill to give to everybody. <laughs> um, or you can email us at stuffpodcast at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?